Welcome to the Events Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and each week I talk with event professionals and entrepreneurs about how they plan, promote, and run their events. We help you build your events empire by growing your business using live events. Whether you're running community meetups or conferences, trade shows, and other events, we focus on finding actionable tips that you can use straight away. We want you to get more attendees, produce epic events, make more money, and most importantly, to do it all with no stress. This podcast is sponsored by EventsFrame. Check it out over at eventsframe.com. Make the switch from Eventbrite today to our amazing ticketing and registration system with no ticket fees. Most ticketing systems charge you a minimum of 3% of the ticket price, but we just have a flat, low fee with no ticket fees and no restrictions. There's literally no system out there that is cheaper than EventsFrame. It's also super easy to use and you can embed your tickets in your website or you can use our own website builder which is really simple. We have amazing options to apply all kinds of discounts and all the features you'd expect from a much more expensive system like QR code check-in. Go to eventsframe.com, that's E-V-E-N-T-S-F-R-A-M-E.com for a free, no-risk, one-month trial. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today I'm delighted to be talking to Andy Fawcett, live from Tokyo. Uh, Andy runs a business called GMB, which focuses on people, uh, how to you know, use their body and do kind of strength and mobility exercises. And he's a former teacher, so great to chat to you. Welcome to the podcast, Andy. Thank you. I am glad to be talking about what we do and sort of how it came out of teaching. I, I've, I still think of myself as a teacher, actually. So uh, when I when I discovered your show, I knew that it was something that was a, a really good fit for me. Definitely. Well, we're recording a few episodes about teacher entrepreneurs, people who like, you know, two different cases. Like first case is teachers who want to kind of run like a side hustle, you know, some entrepreneurial activity they're really interested in. Right. Uh, and the second case, people that want to leave and, and, and do it, you know, as, as a second sort of career. So which, which kind of I think is, is you. So. Yeah, let's get into it. Like, so I don't know much. Like, I, I, I'm learning about about you. We're, we're both members of a group called the Dynamite Circle. It's an entrepreneur, like a location independent entrepreneur community. Which, if people don't know about it, that's kind of the type of business that you could run from anywhere. Definitely, which, which can kind of be anything. You know, like it's interesting. I used to think of it just as like online businesses, but you know, there's people that have factories and things that are in our group. You know, as long as you don't need to be there, it's location independent business, I guess. Yeah, I mean that's something that also I think has uh, the options have expanded in the past ten years, especially as uh, you know communication technology has increased, but also uh, just the ability to do video in a much more lightweight fashion than we used to be able to, and uh, all kinds of uh, just lots of trends in globalization, online payment platforms being able to send money across the world much more easily than you could before. There's a lot of things that have really facilitated the growth of all kinds of different business sectors and the, you know, being able to run them remotely. So it's, it's really fantastic if you're trying to start, uh, start something new. There's a lot more options than there used to be that don't require having to get major investment up front, you know, buy a brick and mortar space, get an office, buy desks and chairs and hire people to come sit next to you all day. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, uh, you know, it's very international. You're in Tokyo right now. I'm, I'm in Prague. Yes. It's, it's pretty, it's a cold, 
about zero degrees actually. It's got it's got really cold here in Prague. Um, we're we're right behind you. <laughs> really? Yeah, Tokyo. Yeah. Tokyo is cold in the winter. But look, I want to get yeah. into your background, how you got into teaching to start off with, and then how you, I want to talk a bit about how you ended up teaching in Tokyo and, and your life there, because that, that's kind of a super interesting to a lot of people. You were teaching in schools there. So how did how did you get into teaching? Like was it straight after college or what was what what happened with you? And where are you from as well? Right. Well, I, I, actually, the answer to like both parts of that uh, start with the Karate Kid. So I grew up in Atlanta, in Georgia, and uh, my father played in bands and did martial arts and stuff. But when Karate Kid came out in like 84, right, I saw that. And I was like, man, I want to do karate. Yeah. So we went around and we found the best karate school for kids. Apparently and, that, uh, film, that film made a huge like, boom in karate all around the world. Huge. It was yeah. huge. Yeah. And back then there weren't like a thousand options like there are now. There wasn't like all of the Taekwondo schools. There there was no BJJ that anyone had ever heard of yet. You know, this was 84. So really there weren't a whole lot of different places teaching. So we went around town and looked for a place that was good with kids. And we found the one school that was really good with kids. And it just happened to teach this art called Taito, which is very, very minor, very rare. rare. It's not even known well in Japan, but uh, for some reason, I've enjoyed it. And so I've been doing that for 35 years now. And that is how I got started teaching is I was doing that from a young age and over time got better and better at it, started helping out my instructor and began teaching classes when I was a teenager. And that was really the thing. I, I looked up to my teachers and I thought it was really cool. And I found it really rewarding when I was able to help other students. And so when I was in college, I, I started thinking, you know, maybe maybe there's something to teaching instead of just doing, uh, you know, technical work. I, I went to uh, Georgia Tech for my first couple of years of college. Many aspects of that experience convinced me that it wasn't the right place for me. <laughs> right. Why, why was that? What, what didn't you like about it? It's a school for people that are very focused and very driven to be, you know, doing research or be doing engineering or working in a certain type of applied engineering or science or mathematic kind of situation. And uh, I went there because I was pretty good at math, but I discovered that I really, really just enjoyed uh, working with people more than I liked working with numbers. Sure. And uh, yeah, so I, I got the chance when I was still in high school to come to Japan the first time in about 93 for the title world championships. Didn't do so great in the tournament, but I did make a few friends. And so when I was in college and I was kind of uncertain what I wanted to be doing, if I wanted to continue uh, going down the technical path or maybe do something else, I actually was able to come over here and I just kind of jumped on a plane. I, got, I had a three-month visa and I came for three months with almost no plans and just kind of bummed around and figured out, uh, you know, learned to speak a little bit, talk to people. And just did what I could, and I started really enjoying it. Had you so, dropped out of college at this point, and what were you doing? Work uh, I, I hadn't technically dropped out yet, but uh, I did take a very nice long break and then go back to a different college uh, when I had determined that I done with what I had been doing up to that point. Right, yeah. right. So, so, you, so, okay, so you spent three months in Japan. Like, you just traveled around, did you? Like, I mean, that's quite expensive to do, especially when you're a student, I guess. The lucky thing was that through my connections with Taito, I happened to know a lot of people that taught that over here. And my instructor was able to introduce me to people. There wasn't the internet. You, you couldn't just look people up on Facebook. Basically, 
it wasn't as easy to find people that were outside of, say, Tokyo. So all of the people that taught this martial art in smaller towns and stuff, I had a connection with them and I was able to basically call them up and say, hey, I'm a student of this martial art from America and my teacher you know, recommended that I get in touch with you and they'd be like, oh, come stay at my house for two weeks. That's so that was basically how I was able to afford it is that I didn't have to pay for very much because I had these connections that I think are a little harder to make these days because we have so many more lighter weight connections. But now, but uh, then, you know, I was young and a lot of people I think wanted to help me out because they saw it as a fairly uh, rare opportunity at that point. And were you teaching in these schools in Japan, in, in these Taido schools, or you were just hanging out and, and training there? So I was training, but I was also of a level that I was able to do a little bit of instruction too. So uh, I, I was doing a little bit of both, but I was definitely trying to soak up as much as I could of other people's teaching while I had the opportunity to do that. Cool. So, so what happened then? You ended up doing this as a right. short-term thing and going back to the States? Right. I, I started coming back and forth every time I got a chance, and that's when it really did get expensive. So I realized that if I wanted to keep you know, spending time in Japan, that I really needed to find a job here. And, you know, the natural thing is teaching English because there's just, there was tons of opportunity for that. And so I went back and I enrolled at Georgia State and figured out what was the least number of classes I could take to complete a bachelor's degree so I could get a teaching visa over here. And I joined a program called the JET program, uh, that basically places native English speakers in rural Japanese schools to teach English. And, what's, and what, I did what that, for, uh, for? Is that, is that an American I think it's a Japan program? exchange and teaching program. It, it's a really, it's a really interesting thing. Uh, it's done by the board of uh, ministry of education here, but you know, it's, it's one of those uh, oxymoronic things where they get all of these Americans teaching American English over here, but they spell program uh, the British way. So, right. Yeah, I don't know. The correct way. <laughs> well, it's debatable. <laughs> exactly. So, and, and how does that work? You didn't, did you need to get a U.S. teaching license or you, you have to have a bachelor's degree and then you could then you could basically go? Is that how it worked? Yeah, for this one, since it was sponsored by the government, you just had to have a bachelor's degree. And so it was a fairly low barrier to entry to do that, which was really nice and useful. And then I was able to get uh, through that three years of classroom experience um, you know, in, in a couple of different schools that was really, really excellent. So how did it, so, so talk me through what happened when you turned up in this rural Japanese town, like what, what, what that must've been quite a like sort of culture shock experience. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I, I had spent time in Japan before, but I had not lived here. I think I was 26 when I moved here the first time the town I was in, it was 4,790 well, 4, something people. Yep. that lived there way out in the mountains about a couple hours north of Tokyo um, it was a very interesting place uh, I since I was an employee of the local government they had a little house for me they had a car for me to use that I didn't even have to pay for I had tons of space uh, it got quieter and darker at night than I had pretty much ever experienced aside from camping so, so and you turned uh, up and you yeah. had a house, you had accommodation ready to go and everything somebody met you and that was all organized yeah, uh, that's the great thing about the JET program is that since it is, uh, it's it's run by the national government, so everything's very uh, very well taken care of. So I really lucked out with that. I really didn't have to worry about too much stuff. 
but you know of course the real the real issues started you know where the rubber hits the road was actually going to the school and learning how to navigate my way around dealing with the students dealing with the other teachers uh trying to communicate what expectations were and things like that let's talk let's talk a bit about the school culture because that's something you know i i only know what i've seen on you know, like the Fast and the Furious when he has to go to Jap- the Japanese school. Oh, yeah, Tokyo Drift. Is, and, I mean, it's t- practically t- a documentary. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so tell me about it. What was it like in the school the first time you went there? So it it was great, actually. It was, it was very interesting. Like you said, definitely a culture shock kind of thing. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's much more regimented than American schools. Like they, they wear uniforms. Um, you know, as in most places in Japan, they don't wear their outside shoes. Everyone has school shoes. Students, the biggest shock to me, this, so my main school was a junior high school. So that's where I spent four and a half days a week. And at that school, there were a few hundred students, maybe 300 students. It was a very small school. But the thing that was really interesting to me that differed from American schools was that you took most of your classes, like 90% of your classes with your homeroom. Right. Uh, much like primary schools would be in in most Western countries, as I understand it. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity for advanced students to advance or maybe remedial students to get more help. Everyone basically stayed at the same level. And that was one of the things that I thought, you know, there's there's pros and cons to this, right? But what I noticed was that what this is, is this is very much part of Japanese society is that you stay with you. You work in harmony with other people. You stay at your level with people that are similar to you, same age, same class, and you don't really do too much uh, in terms of uh, you don't. There's not a lot of opportunity to really surpass that, which is one of the sad things about Japanese culture. On the positive side, though, you do learn to work together. People have a lot of you know. There's you know we talk about harmony, but people have a lot of empathy and compassion and understanding of pretty much of what different situations are like because they've been in that exact situation and sure. it doesn't change. But I guess it's, it's, it's a strange kind of dichotomy because on the one hand, like, like you say, everyone's kept to the same level. And if, if you're, if you're really advanced, it's kind of hard for you to do well. But on the second right. side, it's like Japan, Japanese schooling from what I understand is super competitive, you know, to get into universities, it's people work crazy hard. So it must be hard right. in, under those circumstances for the, for the students. So, yeah, and that's why there's a, a huge, huge industry of what's called juku, which sometimes they call cram schools yeah. because they cater to test prep. But even for students that don't have standardized tests on the horizon at all, there are jukus for, uh, you know, even below elementary school. Uh, where, you know, like Kumon math or something like that, that came out of the Japanese Juku system where kids learn uh, more advanced math, more advanced uh, science or different sort of, uh, you know, elective kinds of activities. There's a whole industry of things that does these outside of the school for those students that actually want more or need more help with different things. And that's where a lot of that sort of competitiveness or catching up kind of happens, which is, is kind of weird. So, that stuff isn't does isn't addressed in the actual school system, but there's this massive industry that has you know risen up to address that outside of the school system. And do most, in your experience, did most of the students go to kind of outside tutoring? Yes. Right. Okay. And what was it like? Um, so you were teaching English. Like, what was kind of like? I'm curious as a teacher there. What's kind of how many hours are you timetable teaching a week? Is it is it intensive or or not so bad? Uh. So. Yeah, I would say it really depended because at that point, English was a required uh, class for junior high, but 
it had gone through a couple of changes in terms of how many hours students were required to take. And right. also since I wasn't the only English teacher, I worked with native Japanese teachers that taught English. Uh, depending on the number of classes and the number of homerooms that we had to teach, uh, we had to break up my schedule in a way that made sure that every class got the same amount of contact with me, which sounds a little weird, but to keep things fair, we had to do that. So I had a few semesters where I had upwards of, you know, 20 hours a week in the class, but then I had a few that it was more like 12 or 13. Right, right. And were you the only only non-Japanese uh, teacher in the school or were there others? In this school, since it was a very small town, yes, there was just me. So I'm curious, like, what, what, I mean, what was it like socially? I mean, did you, did you go out in evenings and weekends and what did you do? Yeah, that was one of the things that was really challenging. Um, you know, uh, I will definitely give credit to uh, the teachers at the school that tried to make me feel welcome, you know, and show me around and everything. But they also had lots of work to do. And being a teacher is very, very demanding sometimes. So especially around exam times and uh, end of semester and stuff like that, there wasn't a lot uh, that they could really do to help me. But I did manage to make friends, some with other, you know, American and Canadian, Australian English teachers in neighboring towns. But also, uh, because of my martial arts background, I was able to join a dojo and practice and make friends through that, which really helped. That's cool. Like, what was it? I mean, was it, I guess, in this small, small place, it was only, I guess, only Japanese food. There was no other options than restaurants and bars and things. It was all, all very local, I guess. Yeah, but we were also, like, I'd say close, but I mean, I also grew up in Atlanta where you drive 45 minutes to see your neighbor. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I would drive 15 to 20 minutes uh, and be in a mid-sized town, a, a small city, I guess, that had, you know, grocery stores and, you know, McDonald's and, you know, all that kind of thing. So right, right. It, it wasn't too isolating, but I did have to really, uh, really want it if I wanted any of that. Sure. And Jap Japanese food's amazing as well. So I think even yeah, in small I, I really wasn't good. missing much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, um, so how long did you work in this school for? So at that point, Jet was limited to three years. So at the end of three years, my contract was up and I went back to the U.S. for about a year and a half. But I had met a lady. We decided that we were going to kind of take the next step together. So after after that year and a half, we actually moved to Osaka together, and I started working at a different school there. And uh, we lived there for about three years, and I was teaching there. And that's when I realized that there wasn't a lot of future in, especially being an English teacher, uh, long term in Japan. Yeah, I've talked to one or two other people. Um who were English teachers and you know it kind of goes a few ways I mean I know I know I've got a few friends in Prague who teach English and people mm -hmm. you know some people use it as a stepping stone they, they want to go work for say an international school as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a as a proper teacher but as, as a you know a, right. a really a teacher and they, they take their teaching license some sure. just want to go off and do something completely different you know it's it's I mean it, it's a tough thing to do I guess forever, unless you sort of start your own language school or something, because it's kind of, you know, it's, it's not a lot of advancement in it, it seems to me, as an English teacher, you know. Right. And so a lot of people do start uh, language schools because, you know, you can be in control somewhat of at least your you know, amount of profitability. Uh, what, what I started doing is I started working more at the, uh, the Department of Education level and started working more with the local governments and training the teachers because I had that classroom experience and I knew what uh, people were coming into. Uh, so I was able to work with new teachers coming 
train them, work with the Japanese teachers that had to work with those people and train them on how to how to have a good you know teamwork experience and everything, and started doing a lot more work on curricula. Uh, the training side of thing than actual classroom instruction. That's interesting. So you were in, in Osaka. Were you were you working for the government then or were you a contractor working part-time? How did that work? I was a contractor working at the Board of Education, yeah. Right. Now, I, I imagine, like, that, I guess that gets into Japanese corporate life a bit. I mean, that, that's something, I, again, I imagine, you know, it's incredibly, people work incredibly hard. You don't leave before yeah. your boss leaves. Was it like that for you or were you kind of out of it as a contractor? There, there was a little bit of that, uh, but it was a weird situation. Uh, and this is one of the reasons that it, it got sort of bad for me at the end is because I was hired as a contractor specifically because the Board of Education did not have enough money to pay full-time employees. Right. And this is what was happening, especially in larger cities. They were you know, having trouble with budget allotments. And so things that were seen as non-essential, like elective language programs, for example, you know, they couldn't afford to retain staff full-time or pay benefits. So you ended up with all these people with contracts that specified exactly 32 hours a week. Uh, so they wouldn't have to be included in the national health insurance plan and that kind of thing, right? Right, right. Yeah, so along the way, you know, things got political and I saw, you know, you know, PE teachers, music teachers, same thing happening to them. And that's when I was starting to think, you know, this is this is something I enjoy, but it's not something that I'm going to be able to keep up with since, you know, at that point I had gotten married and I was thinking long term and family and I really wanted a lot more security. So that's when I started looking into what I could do in terms of, you know, maybe starting my own thing, uh, started off as a side hustle. Uh, but what could I do to have a little bit more predictability and security with my long-term income uh, so that I wouldn't be you know, hoping that my contract would be renewed? And that's basically what it came down to. After two years where I found out that my next year's contract would be renewed only a week or two before the current one expired – you know, I got really, really sick of having to live with that three months of anxiety. You know. Yeah, yeah. And and, and what, so, what? How old were you at the point when you were gonna? You were looking at doing sort of doing something entrepreneurial, doing your own business. So I think. Uh, let's see, I got married. I was thirty-two, so around thirty-two, thirty-three. It's interesting. Uh, I think yeah, that's a lot of. I, I started. I, I never did anything entrepreneurial till my, I guess, probably thirty-four, mid-thirties. You know, and right. a lot of my friends are the same. I think a lot of people you know, think, oh, you know, it's something you've got to be born an entrepreneur. But I mean, I've, I've got plenty of friends didn't do anything entrepreneurial till their 40s, you know, even 50s. Oh, no. people are, and it's and I think it's interesting. I think it's more common to do it at that kind of time rather than something you have to have been doing earlier. Absolutely. I mean, I know I don't know about uh, other countries, but I know if you look at U.S. Department of Labor stats, uh, you you can very clearly see that most businesses are started by uh, actually in their 40s and 50s. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's not it's not strange at all. It's just that now, especially those of us who spend a lot of time online and have paid attention to, you know, tech startups and, you know, the the digital entrepreneur space that we see a lot of younger people doing this. And so there's this sort of uh, this bias in what we see that we feel we see the survivor bias of these young guys that are that have done very well for themselves starting companies but the truth is that most businesses are not in fact started by people straight out of college yeah and it was interesting there was a forbes article recently about um high growth tech startups and the average age of those companies founder was 45 you know as people right. people presume it's kind of a zuckerberg in college and and that's actually the outlier absolutely yeah I mean, obviously, you look at Google and Facebook, and you know these are the, the, some of the biggest companies of, of, of 
the world in ever you know and and they were young guys but it's it, the average is, is is really different it's just fascinating because i think people listen to this you know there's you know it's you know it's teacher entrepreneurship series some teachers that are looking at doing it, something entrepreneurial and and it's never too late you know and and you mentioned men i mean but it's now i think that the trend i'm seeing is more and more women starting their own businesses which which i think it was more men than women in the past and that's that's something mm -hmm. that's changing now which is good yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the one of the people that when I was first looking into, you know, how what what was even possible in terms of starting a business online, I, I really had two people that I learned a lot from. And one of them that I, I just learned an absolute ton from uh, is a lady by the name of Laura Roder, Laura Roder, who uh, she was doing uh, social media marketing campaigns back then. And now she is the founder of a startup called Meet Edgar, yeah, where they I know make. Laura. She's a, she's oh, a great, yeah, yeah, she's fantastic, and I, I learned so much uh, from. You know, I, I bought one of her courses a long time ago, and then just you know watching her and reading her and following along with the things that she's done, she's been an absolute inspiration, and I think that she's a great model of somebody uh, of a of a woman who has really built a, a super strong business and also since then has made it work for her as as an adult and as a mother and you know really really made it fit her life and her needs just to step in here quickly to mention our sponsor events frame a project i'm co-founder of and i want to mention our integrations which we believe are the best available firstly payment integrations you can connect any payment gateway such as stripe PayPal, Braintree, or even bank account or take cash. You can connect everything to EventsFrame. We also have the best marketing integrations out there with every email marketing system, including MailChimp, Sapia, Infusionsoft, Aweber, Drip. And we've got deep integrations with all the social media platforms like Facebook, Google, and Twitter. We've got thousands of events live on EventsFrame right now, ranging from small community meetups to huge trade shows and conferences. Check it out over at eventsframe.com. That's E-V-E-N-T-S-F-R-A-M-E.com. Now, back to the interview. Yeah, definitely. I was I met her uh, in Bangkok recently, the, the, the DCBKK event. And, uh, right. She, she's, yeah, fasc fascinating. She, she was talking to her as well, actually. She's a really good presenter. So um, so you were thinking of something entrepreneurial. Like, what, what was your plan? Like, what did you want to do? Did you have an idea? You know, I didn't really have too much, but I... You know, I, I started looking around and at what people were doing to to be able to start businesses online. And I, I saw, you know, lots of Internet marketing kinds of things. And uh, I I took one of Laura's courses and I took a course by a guy named Clay Collins, uh, who yeah. was teaching about building digital products sure. and uh, learned a lot about uh, copywriting. And I've always been pretty good at writing, uh, pretty good at understanding people. So I started sort of trying my hand at a little bit of freelance copywriting. I, I wrote a couple of sales pages. I even made a couple of small digital products that, you know, made made just enough money for me to say, okay, this is not complete BS. And what, what, what were these digital started... products like? What were they? Like, well, that's kind of vague. So, what, yeah, what, I'm I mean, curious for what they example, were. Uh, at the time, I, you know, I had been through like a ton of job searches, uh, looking for teaching jobs in Japan and trying to find some that, you know, weren't absolute crap. And I knew a lot of people were looking for that too, but that there was really no good information out there and there was a lot of uh, misinformation. So I wrote a really, uh, really simple kind of ebook on how to, you know, determine what kind of teaching jobs were good ones and what, which ones weren't. And that did okay with people that were looking for them. So then I went a little bigger and I wrote, I actually self-published on Amazon one of when that was still a new thing. 
book on how to find a job in Japan and move over here and get a visa, which was a lot broader than just teaching jobs. And I, you know, did a lot of research on that, uh, on how to, how to do those things. And, uh, when, you know, went about trying to, you know, promote that and market that. And what I really did with all during this time was I was just learning how to use the commerce side of the internet as somebody who makes things rather than, you know, as a consumer. Cool. So what about the, uh, the Amazon book? Like, tell me about that. Is it still going? How, how did that go? I mean, yeah, it, it's probably still there. Uh, the information in it is, you know, at least a few years out of date, but I, I don't imagine Amazon has taken it down. And I, all of my notifications for sales and that kind of thing go through the company now, so I don't even see them. But basically, I, I wrote this book. You know, I, I think I wrote it in whatever the native word processor for uh, Mac is. Yeah. Amazon CreateSpace made it really, really super easy. I just uploaded a file, uploaded a graphic for the cover, and set a price. You know, it was really as simple as that. And uh, then it was there. And the thing is, is it was a thing that people do type into the Googles, not millions and millions of people, but enough of them that they stumbled across it. And some people bought it. And uh, I also had a version on the website that had some bonus stuff. And that way I got to keep more of the money than Amazon did. And I managed to make a thing total on that before I took the website down. I think I made six or $7,000 on it. That's great. Is, is it still, is that still something people could do now? Is it still easy to self? I mean, I guess it's easy to self publish a book on Amazon. Is it, is it still easy to actually make some money out of it? There's, there's a huge industry of people teaching how to, how to write books and put them on Amazon and make money. I mean, I know there are authors that are just making incredible amounts of money doing this. However, I think it's one of those things that as the possibility of it has become wider known, it becomes more and more of a bloodbath every year with more people trying to enter into it and more people trying to, you know, game the system and make their way through. Um, so like if, if you were going to ask like my advice on like, is, is that a good market? I would say it's as good as any, but I think the thing is, is that you really need to focus on building your audience and knowing exactly what you have to offer them yeah. uh, before you start trying to sell a product in any kind of marketplace or any kind of ecosystem. That's a good point. Cause the, the way I kind of see Amazon, I mean, you know, like I think if someone's let's, let's take the example of a, a teacher looking to do something entrepreneurial. If they've got a topic they really want to write about and they know a lot about it, it, it could be a good sort of first step into entrepreneurship. You know, you mo you're probably not going to make a fortune out of it, but it, it'll be interesting. You'll get some feedback um, it seems to me now that there's a ton of people who are just, I mean, at almost not, not quite scammers, but just super, super opportunists. They're just pumping out kind of crap focused on optimized keywords and, and trying to, and trying to, you know, sell books on that topic. It seems like there's a lot of that going on in, in Amazon. Oh yeah. I mean, there is everywhere. Anytime there is, uh, there, anytime there's a, a system that incentivizes certain kinds of behavior, or uh, yeah. if you have uh, an algorithm that uses automated tools to determine uh, the fittest recommendation, you're going to find people that spend more time trying to figure out how to game the algorithm than they do trying to actually make good products. Yeah, yeah. Now, you said something interesting about like before you do this or do a book or do anything, it's, it's good to sort of build up an audience and have it. I mean, is that something you think it's good to start off as a first point of any kind of business, you know, starting a blog or YouTube videos or podcast or something to kind of get an audience just generally? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's just tons and tons of great case studies of this. Uh, yeah. You know, um, Nathan Barry, who runs ConvertKit, uh, he talks about uh, you know all the creators who are his clients and the the people that he knows that have made all of these different products and everything, and the way that he made create uh, ConvertKit too is basically just start putting things together. Uh, he yeah. writes, you know, every day. He writes every single day, and from that started you know, putting ideas out there. And then people started responding and people started saying, Hey, you know, I wish I had this thing too. And it goes from there. You have to put yourself in front of people to, to earn their trust as someone that they would uh, hire to advise them. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I could be in any kind of format that could be, you know, in, in a community, you, you could, you could do the whole thing on TikTok now, if that's your jam you know, whatever the kids are into these days, but you need to be putting yourself out there uh, in some way and and starting to sort of get feedback from people that are interested in stuff, build up a community, uh, sort of learn what their preferences are and how you can help them, and then start going from there. If you really just start trying to like build a better mousetrap, uh, I, I, I'm sure history is littered with better mousetraps, yeah. you know? Definitely. Now, now, so you, you did the you did the the Amazon book, self published book, and mm -hmm. a couple of other things. Like, what were kind of what were the next steps in your entrepreneurial journey to led you to your current business? Well, uh, really, around that time, I was uh, I was working out with a guy that had uh, you know his own uh, fitness and yoga studio in Osaka, and I I had also started helping him. Uh, try to get more clients. I, I rebuilt his website and was, you know, trying to do a little bit of copywriting for him and, uh, working with him on that. But we realized, you know, really quickly that, you know, he was really limited by the fact that he could only teach one or max two people in a space at a time. And so okay. he was also starting to think, well, maybe I should try to do something online. So, uh, we partnered up and made a course together. Uh, I was like, yeah, I, I think I can help you with the online thing because I've done it with a few things before. And so we built, we, we started building up, uh, his YouTube channel. We got him in front of people on a few different fitness related forums, uh, built up a little bit of an email list. And then we launched a course. We, we, uh, we pre-sold it. I think we made, we made $3,000 from, uh, 25 people or something like that uh, before we even launched it. Uh, spent six weeks building out the course and serving the people. And it was just good enough for us to know and convince our wives that, uh, you know, it wasn't a stupid waste of time. Wow. And so this was, um, when you said pre-sold it, so this this guy, he already had a list or was this was this kind of the context you'd built up to, to sell the course to? Before we knew we were doing a course, we had started building a small email list. Right, but right. I yeah, we, we started building it up seriously when we were trying to do this. And by seriously, I mean, we started saying, hey, please join our email list. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> this was uh, this was 2009, late 2009. So it, it was a little bit different world on the Internet then. And we had a weekly newsletter that we would send out by email. And that was again, that was just my copywriting. And we would post some videos to YouTube and use that to drive people to the newsletter too. And then we said, Hey, we're thinking about doing a course. Would you be interested? And, uh, we had, you know, like 50 people say, yeah, they'd be interested. And then we said, well, we're going to make it. And it's going to look like this. Uh, you know, the first 25 people that pay us this amount of money are, you know, guaranteed access. Right. And then people did. And what was Surprisingly. It? I mean 
What was it actually like practically? Was it was it YouTube? Was it mostly just videos with some kind of accompanying documents that explain what to do? Or how did you structure the course? Well, I mean, this is a completely obsolete method now. But I mean, what I did is I made a new blog. I made I built it on WordPress. I made a blog on there. We made the homepage, basically the the sales page for it, and then you could log in and. Uh, your account would give you access to the pages that had uh, the content on them. So, you know, we might have like the warm up page that would have a video at the top that would have, you know, maybe uh, some text that listed out the exercises and a few key points and, you know, a download link if you wanted to download the video. Right. And and what what was the next step saying? Because I'm curious because your website now um, to jump forward, it's gmb.io. Very, very cool website, by the way. So was that, did you quickly transfer? translate this course into running your own business or were there some other things you did kind of in between? Well, I mean, we knew we were going to go that way, but we weren't ready for that yet. So yeah. we had a few stops in between. Uh, we, we made a few courses for specific things. We brought on another partner and they had done a yoga DVD back years before, but never really managed to sell most of it. I was like, well, let's just put the whole damn thing online. And we did that. And uh, we spent a few weeks rebuilding that product getting a couple of affiliates to help us market it. And then we, I think we sold $35,000 worth in the first weekend of that. Cool. Uh, and that was our real first test case where that convinced us we needed to start an actual company. And, and so this, you had a business partner, I guess the, the business partner was, is it, is this still your business partner or are you, are you solo now? Yeah. Yep. I have two partners, uh, Ryan and Jarlo. They are my partners in business, best friends, cool, cool dudes. And uh, we've been doing this together for 10 years now. Great. Now, at what point did it? Did you think about sort of quitting your job and uh, and the Ministry of Education in Osaka and doing this full time? Was it a gradual thing, or did you did you say when I hit this income, I'm gonna quit and do it, or did you not even plan to quit originally? Right. Well, by this point, I was completely out of it. I, I had been fed up with it. Um, I, I really couldn't live my life around the way that things were going with that. And so I, I did find a couple of part-time gigs that were very flexible, that I was still able to get you know some income while I was going through all of this stuff, uh, but gave me enough time to work on this. Luckily, uh, my wife also had a decent job, so I wasn't, you know, we weren't completely uh, broke outside of that, but uh, it, it was about, you know, for about a year and then for the first couple of years of the company, actually, you know, about three years of uh, scraping. That's, I mean, that's like, that's the thing people don't often talk about, you know, and, and having an understanding partner in those kind of circumstances is, is hugely important. Absolutely. I, I credit my wife with, uh, you know, a lot, a lot. Just honestly, it, the whole thing is, you know, it's partnership 100%. And sure. everything that I've done has relied on everything that she's done. And also my, my business partners as well. I mean, it's very much a team sport that we're playing here. I know some people manage to do this as, uh, as solopreneurs and, and run things that way. And I have a lot of respect for that. But uh, for me, it's very much been a team sport the entire time. Sure. Um, and how did you end up kind of setting up your own website and, and branding this as kind of your business as opposed to doing these individual courses and things and partnerships? By by that time, we had just had uh, enough people that sort of knew who we were because of the other products and uh, other organizations that uh, my partners had been part of, um, other fitness groups that they had trained with. And, you know, they had done a lot of stuff on YouTube at that point. Uh you know, which at that point, 
at, like I said, it's 10 years ago. So it wasn't like today where you have channels with like 50 million followers or anything. Yeah, it's yeah. like, you know, they had a few hundred, you know, views on some of their videos, which was a pretty big deal back then. Uh, but that was enough for us to, uh, to think that we kind of had something. And, uh, my, my partner that is the head coach of GMB, Ryan was, uh, Actually, I think he was in Australia at the time doing a seminar unrelated to what we were doing. But it, during one of the breaks, he was starting to do uh, you know, some handstands and some stuff, kind of like what we do now. And everyone stopped and said, well, teach us that. We, we'd rather learn that than when you were teaching us. And really, that yeah, was kind yeah. of how we knew, okay, there's an actual market for this. And nobody really was teaching much of that at the time, uh, online at least. So we were able to... Uh, we, we kind of had an open niche and we knew that there was interest and we had built our chops in both building up uh, what today looks like a pretty low tech product. But at the time, uh, there weren't a lot of people doing it, uh, our technical chops and also uh, marketing and that sort of thing. And so we just we knew that we could do it. Uh, we just basically needed to do it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, just as a general trend, I mean, you know, I, I got a CrossFit here and as a a huge functional movement kind of is just become a big thing. People like this kind of uh, way of working out nowadays. Yeah, definitely. I think that there's uh, you know, CrossFit we have to, uh, to thank for a part of that, but also it's, it's just a reaction to, uh, you know, the, the legacy of the eighties with the, the, the Z Cavarici pants and the spandex and the spray yeah. tan and everybody eating like 2000 calories of whey protein a day and trying to do all of that. And then, you know, getting hurt and not getting results. You know? sure. Now, how does this work now? Cause, um, you have these online programs, um, mm -hmm. uh, again, the website's gmb.io. So essentially, you, you know, your business model is you sell these programs, um, to people and they pay a, pay kind of a flat fee for the program. Is that, is that how it works? Yeah, um, there's a lot of people that are trying to go the subscription route now, and we do have a membership for people that want you know more help. That we we have kind of a coaching community thing, but I'm I'm not really a believer in subscriptions. I know that they're they're great for predictability, and a lot of businesses love them, but I think a lot of consumers hate them, yeah. and I think that we're really going to see a backlash and a pendulum swing back the other way away from subscription products. Uh, in the next couple of years. So I'm really not a fan of that. We try to let people know that you buy one of our products, you pay for it once and it's yours. Uh, we have, you know, lifetime updates, uh, lifetime access. And since, and we do actually update it since it's a digital product, we can make changes and make fixes and make improvements pretty easily. So that's something that we're able to provide for people. Yeah. I, you know, I think myself, you know, you've, you end up with so many subscriptions for different things, and I think people are starting to get a bit sick of it. I love anything that's a one-time payment. I, I definitely prefer it myself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, as much as I am a creature of habit, and I do go to the coffee shop and get uh, a cappuccino almost every day, if they decided to switch to monthly billing, I yeah. would not go back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Although, you know, now with the Starbucks app, I, um, I do preload money all the time. They've kind of, they've almost got me onto a recurring plan with, <laughs> with that. You know? Starbucks app is pretty incredible. I, I have to give Starbucks a lot of credit for the thoughtfulness and the ease of use that went into that. It's great. And you know, the great thing about the Starbucks app to go off on the tangent is a couple of things. It's actually worthwhile because you get a free extra shot. First of all, you get a free coffee pretty regularly. Like, you know, when you go as often as I do, you know, you get a, you get a free coffee, you know, once a month or something, you know, so it's or maybe more. It's, it's, it's a great, and at least for Czech Republic, it's, it's a really, really well-made app. 
Now, um, I'm curious, like, I'm always interested what people's days look like. Like, what, if you tell me, like, what, what do you do? Do you work at home? Do you work somewhere else? What, what tasks do you work on? How do you sort of, I'm always fascinated by entrepreneurs and how they, how they structure their day. Sure. Well, I mean, mine has changed a lot as the company has grown as we went from three people to four to seven to 12 to now 23 people in GMB. And also my my schedule changed. I, I used to live in Hawaii, so I was in the last time zone. So I was I would start my day playing catch up. But now I'm in Japan. I'm in one of the first time zones. So my Monday is actually Sunday evening for most of my staff. So right. Monday is a very quiet day for me now. So Monday is my planning day, my high level strategic day. I used to work at home, but now I have a young daughter and I don't want her to think of me as the guy in the corner with a computer. So I have a small office. And since you've been in Tokyo, you know, I have a literal closet that I call my office that I work at. And I, I keep regular hours because like I said, I'm a creature of habit and I like that. Uh, but yeah, I, I mostly come here and I come to my office in the morning and I log on and I see everyone's freakouts and complaints and questions and stuff. And I, I dive right into it. I know everyone says, don't open email first thing. So I, I love to it. get into it. Yeah, I so love to get into it. It is. And I, and I understand that. And I, I, I'm definitely a fan of the deep work and that kind of thing. But I also, I just like to dive right into it, get it done, talk to people and be there. And then the thing is, is, you know, due to time zones, again, you know, after afternoon for me, I'm pretty much the only person in my company that's actually awake, aside from one of my partners who lives in Osaka now. So yeah, so at that point, I really can sort of dig dig deeper into things and have a little bit of isolation and work on stuff like that. So I just kind of flopped my day from how it used to be. And that's what I do. I try to keep try to keep pretty good hours, like maybe about six hours a day, Monday through Friday. Yeah. Now you mentioned before, like uh, before we started recording, you live in sort of central Tokyo. Like, do yeah. you, what, I'm curious, like what's your actual office like? Is it a shared office space? Is it lots of Japanese companies around you? Like, is it downtown? Like what, what, where do you actually work? Yeah. So this is, this is a, a shared office building in Songenjaya, which is a little bit uh, outside of uh, Shibuya. Um, it's a three-story building with, like I said, closets, tons of closets. Do you uh, a window? Uh, yeah, 40, 45 closets in this building. Wow. And I, I very rarely see another human face, though I know there are people <laughs> behind these doors. And you, you have a window? I do have a window. That's cool. Uh, I overlook the uh, fire department, so I get to see the, uh, the nice young men training out there. Right, fantastic. And what, um, <laughs> you know, we kind of skipped over, but, you know, so many people now, when you think of building a team, they think they've got to have an office and employees sitting there. But, you know, we almost take it for granted in the kind of circles we move in. But a team is remote, you know, where you have people all, all around the world. And, and I guess from how you're describing your team, that's how your team is. Yes, yes. We're, we're in, uh, I think we're in six or seven countries and we span, what, 18 time zones. And, and what do your people do? Like, can you, if you can break down uh, what sort of jobs do they do and your team? Sure. So I have my two partners and they are mostly involved in creating content and uh, sort of managing a couple of the other teams. We have uh, our first hire that's been with us for about nine years that uh, originally started as you know doing customer support, but now is sort of chief of staff for the whole company and manages a lot of our teams. Uh, we have a lead developer, a back-end developer, a front-end developer. We have a content writer or a copywriter. We have an email systems person uh, that manages our ads as well. Uh, we have a sort of uh, WordPress uh, 
uh, front-end content manipulator person. We have a graphic designer. We have five full-time support staff, three of whom are also trainers uh, that give specific advice uh, to our coaching clients. Um, who else do we have? Uh, it's, it's really all in that kind of vein. We have pretty much anything you can think of in terms of creating digital content. We have writers, editors, uh, you know, people that do the technology, people that do the marketing, and you know, the subject matter experts that actually come up with the content. And are any of the people physically in the same place? I mean, and what countries? I mean, I guess, do you have some people in the Philippines or where, where, where are they located? Uh, sometime we do have a few people that are, you know, close-ish, but we don't have anybody that actually like works together. Right. Um, you know, so we, for example, our, our video videographer and main editor lives in Atlanta where I grew up. So, uh, if we have a big filming project, we'll actually fly into Atlanta and rent a studio there, okay. uh, and film there. Um, you know, but so we, we have people, I guess the main places are like Atlanta, Seattle, LA, Vancouver, outside of Toronto, a couple of people in the UK, uh, one who spends her time between Berlin and Honolulu, Austria. I'm probably missing at least a couple, but yeah. So I guess you, you must have got up to pretty high revenue to build this team. Like, did it, Was it gradual? Were you just taking on more and more? Were you doing everything yourself in the beginning and then gradually taking on more people as the business grew? Yeah. Basically, that's how it went. And there's there's always times where it's a chicken and egg thing. Yeah. Like you need you need to hire people to grow to the next level. Uh, and it, it's been gradual with spurts. It's it's uh, it's that model of evolution where you you have a, a slope and a jump and a slope and a jump. It's yeah, not definitely. a straight line. So, like for example, one year we went from eight hundred forty thousand dollars in revenue to two point two million dollars. Wow, that's great. Yeah. So like that kind of jump is, is I think something that really happens when you, when everything's dialed in to get to that level and then you do the things and then you're there. Right. Definitely. That is fascinating. Now, now I'm curious, just, I know we're getting close on time. Like you sure. mentioned in-person events and you run some kind of workshops. If you could talk me through that and is that, do you, is that, is that much of a moneymaker for you or is it to promote your online services or how, how does that work? Well, one of the things when you have a remote team is you really value being able to meet up in person, but uh, doing that costs money, right? Yeah. So for us, events are a way to defer the costs. Wow, that's a great idea. Uh, so, yeah, we have, we have 60,000 clients in you know, about 100 countries. So many of the major cities in the world, we can do an event and we can, you know, we can sell out a seminar of one or two days for you know, 20 to 50 people. And that affords us, you know, enough to fly in whatever staff and coaches we need to be able to do the thing and then also have our meeting and uh, get to get to hang out together and work together. So we don't really use those as a as a you know, revenue generator. It's, it's something that uh, it does let us you know, meet our clients and be able to work with them and give them something that's unique and special and that uh, they want. But it also. You know, it meets a it meets a business need for us, but it isn't something that we're relying on. And are you promoting these events outside of your members, or are you just sending the, the email out to the members come along to this to this workshop? I mean, we'll 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 put up a Facebook ad to people within like a twenty mile radius who have interacted with our website or Facebook page before. Right. But we primarily are just marketing these to people that already bought our products. Cool. Look, Andy, that's really fascinating. I want to thank you for, for coming on uh, and, sure. and sharing it. Is there anything else you want to promote apart from the website? 
you know, everybody's got something they're trying to shill. I, I want anybody listening to this to, uh, you know, look at what you really want out of life, look at your situation, figure out what's right and appropriate for you, and then just do the hell out of that. That's what I want to sell. Fantastic. That's great advice. Andy, thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. Do you want to sell more tickets to your amazing events? Events Frame Event Ticketing has been built to minimize the amount of time it takes to buy a ticket. Result? You sell more tickets. Check out eventsframe.com 